So if you have a Bible, open it up to chapter 3 of Daniel. We're going to be working through this narrative. If you don't have a Bible with you, I know there are Bibles located kind of along the sides. If you can get reception on your phone, there's lots of good ways. It'll be up on the, on the screen as well, though. Daniel chapter 3. So starting here in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the heralds proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's a startling image in a lot of ways, and it's, it's meant, chapter 3, we're supposed to remi- remind ourselves of chapter 2, and it's been a few weeks, Josh Sleeper preached through chapter 2 for me when we were out of town about this dream, right? It's to, it's to hearken back to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, where he had a, a dream of a statue, of a great statue, and remember that head of the statue was of gold, and the interpretation given to Nebuchadnezzar was, right, you are that head of gold. Well, here you have Nebuchadnezzar, right, running with that and saying, I'm not just the head. I will make an entire statue of gold, and it'll be entirely made of gold. I mean, no one builds a statue entirely of gold. And a lot of people read this and like, oh, no, it wasn't totally gold. No, they want you to think, at least, if he built it or if he didn't. But the idea is it's an entire gold statue, and it's enormous. It's monstrous in height, incredibly narrow, incredibly tall. He's making this statement, right, Daniel, thank you for your interpretation of the dream. Right? Thank you that I know that I am that golden statue who will rule over the world. But my kingdom will have no end. Right? Mine will last forever. I can build this golden statue. And it's a vague and monstrous image. The image could be of the king himself. It could be of one of his gods. The text is silent. Right? The point is, whatever the image is of, we know who built it. The text repeated that for us. Nebuchadnezzar set this up. It's to make a point that no matter what, no matter where you've come from, because he has gathered, the entire world is gathered to this place, to this moment, to this location. And that location really matters, this plain of Dura. The very spot where he builds this is the spot where the Tower of Babel was built in Genesis. Right? And Nebuchadnezzar gets this. The author gets this. They want you to see this, right? Where all the people were together and got scattered, Nebuchadnezzar is bringing them back, right? Everyone unified together, every tribe, every tongue, every 
people right from everywhere around the world coming together in this moment of unity, right, bowing before this statue. It's an attempt, right? Because when you think about what Babel was, Babel was an attempt to make a name that would last forever. That's what the text tells us in Genesis, that it would prevent the people from being scattered and displaced. That's why they built that tower. And it's really the same reasons that Nebuchadnezzar is building this one. The same things, to make a name, a testament, a lasting testament to the greatness of him, of Nebuchadnezzar, right? who was the greatest king who probably ever lived in the history of the human world. But he's going to make a lasting name and to prevent the people from being scattered, a unifying focus. How can I unify all these nations? How can I unify all of my people? I will bring them all together and we will be unified. The curse of Babel put into reverse. And this is a very common practice, right? It makes sense. If you put yourself in the shoes of Nebuchadnezzar for a little bit, I mean, how would you unify all of these people with all of these different religions, all of these different languages, right? It's not a big speech. It's music. Everybody gets music, all right? I'll play music and everyone will bow at this time and this place to the statue. I'll make it vague. You can make it whatever God you want it to be, right? And he's being very accommodating. This image, you can pretend you're bowing to your own gods. That's fine. Just remember, I'm the one who built it, right? Unifying all the people. He's not asking of them to get rid of their religion, right? He's not telling the Jews, you can't worship Yahweh. He's not telling the Babylonians, you can't. No, he's saying you can worship your gods. Just remember, right, who is the one who is unifying you. Just remember who is your king, right? You can worship the way you want to worship and you can even pretend, right? This image is your own God. Just bow, bow to it. This one thing that can unify the people. Verse eight. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the co-workers, right, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the magicians, they rat them out, right? There's three. I mean, everyone is bowing down, but three. Goes to the king and accuses them really of two things, ingratitude and impiety, They don't, what's driving, and I get that. I get what's driving these Chaldeans. They're not grateful to you. They don't respect you, right? Like you have done everything for them. They, you put these three, remember you took these three men and you put them in positions of authority over your whole provinces and they won't recognize you, king, for what you have given them and what you have done. They don't show you any respect. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, 
commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What a confrontation. The king flies into a fury, right? There's few things in this world, right, that make leaders get angry as being disrespected or feeling disrespected, right? Nebuchadnezzar feels disrespected by these young men and he flies into a rage and he gives them an out, right? He gives them a chance. I mean, is this true? I will give you another chance. If you are willing, all fine and good. And their answer to him is so defiant. We don't need to give you a defense. Like, what do you mean you don't need to give him a defense? He's your king. He's your boss. He's given you your jobs. He, he has death hanging over you. And you say, I don't need to give you any defense for what we've done. In essence, they're saying, right, we serve a God who will defend us. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to defend my name. I don't need to defend my reputation. I don't need to defend myself against all these accusations. My God defends me. He will save me. And even if he does not, right? What an amazing phrase, that but if not. Because all the way up to that, it's like, okay, he will save us. He will deliver me from your hand. I have no worry. But if not, we still won't serve you in this way, right? And, and we've got to remember what they're doing. They are serving the king. They work for the king. They are diligently working for the king. They have taken jobs that are in this, I mean, they work for the king. But, but you're not our king. You're not our ultimate king. And there's no doubt as to where the power really lies. And a lot of way through Daniel, and especially this chapter, it's all about the power. Who really has power here? Nebuchadnezzar seems like has power. But these guys are telling him, look, you don't really have any power over us. We have nothing to fear. And in fact, they understood that God is truly in control of all of these things, including their life, including their death, that they're not setting up a test of God's power. Deliverance is not going to be the test or the evidence that they need to see that God is powerful. They know he's powerful. He doesn't need to deliver them. <laughs> Whoa. Like they are so convinced of the sovereignty and the power and the control of God in this world and in their lives that, that he doesn't have to deliver them to know that he is powerful. We know he's the most powerful, even if, even if he doesn't deliver us from your hands. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury 
and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. This image of the burning, right? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar already was angry. Now he is seven times more angry. That furnace was already going. Now it is seven times hotter, right? Like just the, the, the level of rage is just building to the point where the guards die. And there's a great irony, right, in that. I think that the, the author wants us to see of the ones who are supposed to die are going to live. And the ones who are supposed to live are the ones who die, the ones that the king supposedly can protect, he can't protect. And the ones he supposedly can kill, he, he can't kill. He has no power to save or to kill. 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Then they answered and said to the king, true, O king, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The great twist of the story, the king leaps to his feet, looks into the furnace and sees four men unbound and one with the appearance of the son of a god, right? And that, that image is gonna keep coming back in Daniel of the son of a god God did not just save his servants, right? And this is an important lesson. We're going to see it all the way through, right? He didn't deliver them, right? He didn't. He could have delivered them beforehand the same way he just delivered them in chapter one, right? They were supposed to die in chapter one and God delivered them. They never went to the executioner. He didn't. They went into the fire. He didn't extinguish it. He doesn't pluck them out. They're there. They're in the fire, <laughs> Who knows what was going to happen? If Nebuchadnezzar never would have looked in, right? How is that story ending? I don't know. But God joined them in the fire. A God who dwells with man, right? Thinking back to chapter one, that even that phrase of the wise men to Nebuchadnezzar, right? No one can answer your dream for you because God doesn't dwell with man. He does now and he does with these men there is someone, it is a God dwelling with these men in the midst of this fire, right? Never before. Right? He's, I can't imagine a God who would be with his people, physically with them in the midst of their, their fire. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Right? All of these people who had gathered to see the power of Nebuchadnezzar right now are all gathering and seeing the power of Yahweh, watching these three. Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar 
right, answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You've got the fulfillment, right, of Isaiah 43. If you know, right, the prophets have been warning, have been telling Israel what's been coming for a long time, right? The narrative of the Bible has been really clear about this. You are going to suffer. Israel, I got to take away from you everything that you hold dear because you've turned it into an idol. You are going to go through things. In Isaiah 43, right, he says, he tells his people, when you pass through the waters, right, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. God never promised in the prophets to his people, and he doesn't promise to us, right? But he never promises that there won't be floods, there won't be rivers, there won't be fires. On the contrary, Scripture is very, very clear on this, right? I mean, George just preached in Revelation. I mean, the expectation of a follower of Jesus Christ is persecution and suffering and rejection and death. I mean, that's the promise. <laughs> but God will never abandon us. He will never leave us. He joins us. That our trials and our suffering will never be meaningless. The king praises the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? He won't call it, he still, he refers to him as, as their God, right? The God of them. He's not willing to bow his knee anytime soon yet. And in fact, right, he doesn't get it at the end, right? He's still scrambling for his own power, right? Anyone who speaks against this God, I'll tear him limb from limb. Like, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you don't have that power, right? That, you're just embarrassed in front of your entire world that you don't have the power to kill, right? You tried to punish and God spared them. And the ones you were supposed to protect were the ones who died. You have no power over human life, but he still is clinging to it, right? Anyone who speaks bad about this God, I'll destroy them. Oh. But you have this picture, right? With this narrative, it's such a powerful one, and it's been around for so long because it's, it, it's such a, a vivid image, and it's almost impossible not to see ourselves in these stories. That's the great thing of Hebrew narrative, right? Is these characters and the characters are rich and they want you to imagine yourself in those positions and to think about, well, what would you do? Why, would, did, why did they do what they did? And would I do the same things? And would I have done these things? I mean, as a child, right? I grew up very uh, Christian in a Christian home and in evangelical. And I mean, many of you did too, have heard this story, right? I mean, your whole life, you, you're familiar with this. I mean, most people, are familiar with this. Even if they're unchurched, you're familiar with the story of the fiery furnace. And it's this, right, always that question hanging over of you, would I have stood up to the king? Would I have not bowed down? And I'm, I'm, I was quick as a child to answer, right? Yes. I will go to the burn. I will burn before I will ever worship another God. Yes. I will never forsake my Lord and Savior. I will do it. 
if that happens to me someday, but in the back of your mind, you know it never will because you live in America. You're like, but if it did, if I got somewhere, if, if some foreign government gave me the choice, death or renounce Jesus, I'll pick death. I know I will. Hey, and, and we read the story and we think in those terms. And you're like, yep, I get it. Shadrach and Meshach, they, they did it. I'll, I'll do the same. I won't bow down. But the reality is, right, the reality is, and especially when I start to really look at this story, this wasn't about forsaking Yahweh, right? All the other Jews are still, I, they're not, he's not asking them to give up their religion. He's just asking them to acknowledge their king, <laughs> right? Acknowledge Nebuchadnezzar. Show some respect, right? I mean, actually, if I really put my religious hat on, I got a problem with these guys. I'd rat them out too. Like what, how ungrateful. I mean, this isn't a big deal. Come on, can't you just bow a knee to your country? Can't you just acknowledge Nebuchadnezzar? as? I mean, he's been good to us. He's given us food from his table. He's given us jobs. He's given us life. He gives us, he is the source of our security. Are you will, really gonna tick off Nebuchadnezzar by this way? Why don't you just take a knee. It's not a big deal. When the music plays, bow down. When it's over, get up, go back and pray. It's actually not that bad of a request. Right? And if I really look into myself, I see how easy it would be to bow that knee. And the reality is of how often I do bow my knee right now all the time. Right? This image of idolatry Right, just fits all the way through Scripture. And that's really what the author wants you to see and why that image is so vague too. They don't really want you to know what that image is because that's not what matters. <laughs> it's this bowing down to things. It's this worshiping of things. It's I worship something else and God. Not just that I've given up God, but I've got God on the side, but I also bow down to something else. Well, if I'm honest, right, I do that every day. I've got all of these ways in which I I'm desperate to bow down to idols because our idols in our life promise us things. They promise the same things that this idol promised. Life, recognition, comfort, unity, family. You know, like Nathaniel said, well, this, this promises that. If I just bow down, I will have acceptance. I will have a community. I will have all of those things. C.S. Lewis writes about that the, the greatest struggle of man, or the greatest, strongest desire within humans, and I think he's completely right, is this desire to be on the inner ring, is what he describes it. On the inside of something, right? We all know this feeling. Think back to junior high. Think back to grade school. Think back, well, just work now, anywhere, church, communities. I just want to be in I want to be on the inside of a group, right? I want to be on the inside of something. I don't, I, I mean, I'm fine, right? I'm fine with there's people who disagree with me. I'm okay with that, but I need to be in a group. I need to have people, I want to be on the in, on the inner side. And, and it's this intense then desire and need to be right, to conform yourself in whatever way you need to conform yourself to make sure you're on the inner ring. You're in that inner circle. What do I have to do to make sure that I am with the right, I have the acceptance of the right people I'm after? And we do this all the time, right? I mean, I do this. You do this. I haven't really left junior high very far, right? But this 
I need to dress a certain way. I need to speak a certain way. I need to do a certain thing or not say certain things because I need people's approval. I need to know that you are going to be there for me. I need to be in. It's socially, right? I'm thinking of my neighborhood, politically, oh, right? That desire to be on the right side of the circle, whoever, what group you're with or talking about. Within churches, economically, there's always this desire to be right. And it doesn't have to be a huge circle, but at least I'm in the right circle, <laughs> right? I got to be in agreement with the right people, not the wrong people. And if I find myself outside of that circle, whoa, what happened? What do I have to do to get onto the inner circle, the one with the cool kids, the ones with the ones who are really the ones I want to identify with, right? So I conform. And I do these things. I all the time. And it's these imaginary lines, right? And that's what makes it so exhausting for us, right? It's what's so exhausting is you just don't know where that line is. When am I on the inside and when am I not? Well, what do I have to do to get in? Okay, then once you feel like you're in, it feels like that line moved all of a sudden. You're like, oh no, how do, how do I get in again? I, okay, and you're just constantly chasing that and maintaining it and guarding it. And it's exhausting. It's the, the, we believe our idols. We believe what they promise us. We believe, right, that they really will bring me hope, that they really will bring me peace, that they really will bring me love, that this group of people is worth it. I mean, yes, I know that I probably shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I know that I probably shouldn't say the things that I say. I know that I probably should confront my coworkers. I know that I probably should confront my group of friends or my wife or my children. I know I should probably, but if I don't, if I just love them, if I do what they want from me, if I conform to their expectations, my life will be better. Happy will be my life. No conflicts. That's what I want. And I think that if I conform, that it'll deliver it. And I believe the threats, right? I believe the threat that Nebuchadnezzar gives, right? We believe our idols' threats. If I go against them, they will destroy me, <laughs> right? I, I, they will, I will be on the outside and I will be ridiculed and mocked. I will have no community anymore. I will lose everything if I stand up to this person, if I say what I think God is calling me, if I don't do these things. I mean, yeah, the threat is too great. I can't risk it, right? I can't risk this with my wife. I can't risk this with my children. I can't risk this with my family, with my friends, with my church. I can't risk this. Right? It's just too great of a threat. We believe the threats. Which is why there's such good news, right, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such good news, because I read these things Right? And I want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want to be strong. I want to be courageous. Right? I want to not conform. Right? I want release from that desire to be in the inner circle. <laughs> I'm tired of trying to be a cool kid in whatever circle I'm in. And at some point you get to the realization, right? And that's kind of growing up is the realization like, oh, I just can't, I'm just not cool. All right, well, that's fine. But we still try to get approval. It's exhausting, I want to be freed from it. I don't want to have to earn and get the praise and approval of people all the time. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ reveals, right, the powerlessness of those idols. 
they have no power. Just like God revealed the power, the impotency of Nebuchadnezzar, he has no power. Those are idle threats. That's what Jesus does for us. Those threats are idle. They don't, they have no power over you. They have nothing to fear. He faced all of the fury that those idols threatened us with and threatened me with daily, right? He faced them. He faced the temptation. If you compare the temptation of Christ to the temptation of Nebuchadnezzar, it's nothing. Their temptation, right, was to bow down to an idol. Oh, Jesus' temptation, right? He had the world at his fingers. He could have ruled it all. He could have had everything, the praise and the adulation of everyone. And instead, he picked the rejection and the suffering of everyone. His death was not a martyr's death, right? We have to really get that out of our heads. It wasn't this like, oh, wow, like everyone respected his death. No, he didn't respect his death. It was a shameful death. He couldn't even carry his cross. He went weeping and a common criminal's death outside the city gates. His own disciples didn't even show up. It was so ignoble. He couldn't even stay alive for more than a few hours on the cross where a normal man would have stayed alive for days. It was a shameful death. He took shame to show you, to show us that it has no power over you, (laughs) that rejection and shame and suffering has no power because he reversed it all. His court case, right, compared to these three Right? He, he endured a far harsher interrogation than these three did. And he still didn't conform. Right? He was truly innocent. These three are guilty. Right? If you look at these guys, they deserve to go into the furnace. I mean, if that's the law of the land, they broke the law and they deserved their death. That's what should have happened to them in that sense. Jesus didn't deserve his death. And he willingly went like a lamb to the slaughter. Right, the furnace, the, the furnace, the in, what they endured in the fire, not even being burned. What kind of suffering is that compared to Christ's suffering that he endured on the cross? The alienation, not just from man, because, I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Medigo received that, right? The suffering and rejection of man. They were alone. They're, they were abandoned by their, their coworkers, ratted out by them, sure, but they had God with them in the flame. Jesus did not. He was abandoned by God on the cross. He was forsaken. You know, that's, that's suffering. The suffering and the rejection he, he did, he endured for us. He, he took all of it, all of the fury, anything, any threat that we could possibly feel threatening us, he endured it. And he secured for us what our idols could never really deliver, right? He showed it. He went through that. He endured their threats. He took their fury to show us that it was powerless, completely powerless. He took the worst to show us that nothing could ever hurt us. Nothing could ever separate us from his love. And then he secured for us what those idols promised me daily and showed me how much better his promises are. He gives me the verdict that we're so desperate for. I'm in. (laughs) That inner circle, what possible inner circle could be even closer to the praise and the acceptance of my Lord and Savior? That God himself, right, looks at me. He looks at you, right? And what is true of Jesus is true of me. 
he credits to us his faithfulness. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. I find no fault in you. That's the voice of our king compared to the voice of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Which is the voice of our idols. I love you if you bow down to me, right? The voice of our king is, I loved you when you were my enemy. I loved you when you refused to bow down to me. And even if you never bow down to me, I love you. Even if you continue to worship other gods, I still love you and I find no fault in you. I've taken everything on myself to give you life. So what difference does that make for us, right? If to hear the voice of our king, right, a true king, a true king with power who has endured our suffering and has turned it into our blessing, what difference does that make, right? The more and more that we see Jesus and we see what he has done for us and secured for us, the less and less I'm seduced right, by my idols. The less and less I'm afraid of them. The more and more I see Jesus and what he has done, right, I don't need to be on that inner group anymore because I'm already in. I have everything that they've promised me. I already have it. I'm not afraid to speak the truth. I'm not afraid to not conform. I'm not afraid because we know all the way through Daniel, back to chapter one, right? Like there are all of these things that the world says are good and that are fine, acceptable, but that are defiling us, right? And you know this, we know this. The church is defiling itself daily. I defile myself, right? There's all of these ways in which I bow my knee to someone else because I think they're gonna give me acceptance, love, approval, power, something. If it's at work, if it's in my family, if it's in the church, if it's in my neighborhood, right? There are, there, we know that there are things we are called to, which is why we don't like to be alone in prayer and solitude because we know those things are gonna come to us. We know that God continues to put before us the people in our life that we are supposed to talk to, the people, the ways in which, the, the sins that I'm supposed to confess, the community I'm supposed to be genuine with, the, the, the coworker I know that I'm supposed to confront in or the way in which I'm supposed to stop. I mean, I, we know these things. It's quick and easy to make those lists. But it's really hard to find the strength to do it because we believe that those things give us life. But the more that we rest in the verdict given to us by Jesus, the more it leads to our performance. Because Christianity is the only religion that works this way. It's the only philosophy that works this way. Right? Every philosophy, every system in this world works from the standpoint of performance leads to a verdict. Right? Does that make sense? Like you work and then you earn. You get something. I, if I do this, then I will be counted as faithful. If I work hard, I'll get a paycheck at the end of the week. If you do these steps, you will find enlightenment. If you do these things, you will have a better marriage. If you do these things, your children will be godly. And if you do these, it's a system. It's a philosophy. It makes sense. It has the appearance of wisdom, Paul will say. But it has no power, he'll also say. The only power comes from Jesus who says, I'll give you everything. Now you get to live. I give you the verdict on the front end. Now what are you going to do with it? Right? That, leads to, that leads to your performance. I'm fully loved. I'm redeemed. 
I've got the king's approval before I ever did anything for him. Wow, how am I going to serve him with my life? What will I do with my life if I don't need to earn anybody's praise or approval? If I don't worry, what's that life look like? It's hard for us to even imagine it at times. And we get glimpses of it, right? The more and more we renew our mind in the gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus, the more and more we see him, the more rebellious we become in our culture too, right? The history of the church is one of rebellion, of all right, of in, insurrection of, right, if people, if the, if the government really knew, right, what goes on in churches, right, it would, they would throw us into furnaces, right? This idea of, right, you don't have power. I serve you. I, I love you. I love the government. I'll, I'll serve it. I'll work for it. I'll, I'll faithfully give. I'll, I'll, I'll die for it even. But it doesn't have any power. It's powerless. Whoa. The most rebellious act we can do in our culture today as Christians is to not need the praise and approval of other people, right? That's the most rebellious thing you can do is to not need someone's praise and approval because you have it already. We all have these inner rings in our life. I mean, so identify those rings. Where are you so desperate to fit in? And where have you compromised yourself? Where do you conform in ways that you know you shouldn't? Right? And then remind yourself, not that you need to work harder or that God is disappointed in you because you're, not conform- you're conforming. No, remind yourself that you already have the approval that you're after. Rest in the love and the grace that's given to you by Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us this life of truth, a life of hope, a life of confidence. Really this life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That it's not a life of, a, our hope is not of things going well for us, right? That's what our idols promise, that your life will go well for you as long as you do these things. You'll have a happy life. Our king doesn't promise that. In fact, it's the opposite. However, right, he does promise, but all things will be well, right? That you will never be abandoned. You will never be alone, he will never abandon you or forsake you in the midst of the fire that's going to come. Right? Which would you rather do? Right? I would rather live this life of quiet, of confidence, of hope, of faithfulness, trusting in the King who loves me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your great love and mercy. Uh, Lord, we recognize how unfaithful we are as a people how prone our heart is to wander and to leave you. Lord, you show us your great love and your mercy every day in so many ways if we just look for it. And we have seen it. We've seen, we've tasted and seen how good you are. And Lord, we still bow down to other idols. We thank you that you do not abandon us, but that you went through the suffering and the rejection that we deserve so that you could secure for us the acceptance and the love that we are so desperate for. Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for your power, that there is none who has the power of you and that you've demonstrated that power to us through your Son, that you've established a family where we can gather together 
and be reminded of who we really are because we are quick to forget. Lord, continue to remind us. Continue to speak to us. Never stop speaking to us, whispering to us that voice that tells us that you love us, that we are your sons, we are your daughters in whom you are well pleased. You have called us into your family. You have purchased us with your blood that nothing can ever separate us from your love. Lord, help us. Strengthen us to know that great love and that mercy. Be with us. In your name we pray. Amen.